Well, good morning. How's everyone doing today? Good, good. Welcome to First Prez. I'm so glad you're here. My name is Daniel. I am the new uh, missions and outreach director here at the church, and I have the privilege of continuing uh, this series we've been in talking about uh, the wellspring, how we live from a place of God's generosity. And this is week three, and I'm excited to share the word with you today. But before I do, I thought I'd share a little story with you um, to kind of give you another little glimpse into who I am as a kind of relatively new staff member. Uh, And I want to just ask you at the beginning of this story, if you would be willing to suspend judgment of me until the end of the message, okay? So uh, I mentioned before that I'm from the South. I grew up in South Carolina, and if you didn't catch that the first week, it's going to become deeply embedded uh, in your psyche that I'm a Southerner, because I'm pretty sure the story I'm going to tell you would only happen in the Deep South. So when I was nine years old, my mom started taking me to church, And, uh, you know, I gave my heart to Christ. And in my Sunday school class was a guy by the name of Jay Thrasher. Isn't that a great last name? Thrasher. I was always kind of jealous of that name because it just sounded cool. Uh, And and I didn't know Jay super well. Um, I I had a few interactions with him, a few conversations here and there. But one day, we found ourselves together in the church parking lot. And we were having a conversation that led to an argument about whose mom cooked better. Right? This is, this is the South, right? I don't know if that happens anywhere else, but in the South, it's kind of a normal thing. And so we had these words about whose mom cooked better, and this argument quickly escalated, and before you know it, there were fists flying. We were throwing each other into cars in the church parking lot, okay? Now keep in mind, I'm only 11 years old, but this was serious business, all right? He was talking trash about my mom was cooking, and we can't have that. And so, true story, we're throwing fists, and, and next thing you know, a few minutes pass, we are both laying on the church parking lot with blood on our faces, and then Jay just leans back and looks at me. He says, hey man, you want to come to my house and play Nintendo? And we literally became best friends. That was the moment it happened. True story. I got some pictures of Jay here. We, uh, we, I, I couldn't find any really old pictures, uh, but this one was, uh, the first one that's coming up here was from uh, when we first went to Youth with a Mission. Jay actually went with me. We did uh, discipleship training school and YWAM together, and uh, he was a good friend from that age on, and we did all kinds of crazy adventures together. He was a groomsman in my wedding. Uh, and I flew all the way to England for the wedding to, to be there. Uh, my wife, if I hadn't mentioned, is British and attractive, both things important. Um, and then uh, just a couple years ago, I, I flew out to Cincinnati. I hadn't seen him in almost 10 years. We talk on the phone occasionally, but sometimes life just kind of pulls you apart. And so we met up in Cincinnati uh, to see the Miami Dolphins take on the Cincinnati Bengals, which was a glorious time. Um, we were both Miami Dolphins fans, which means there's this shared misery between us. And so it's kind of bonding. You know, when you suffer with someone, you're connected to them. And we've suffered for years as Miami Dolphins fans. Uh, But I tell you all this to to say that that one little comment he made where he had graciously invited me to come to his house and play Nintendo after a fist fight in the church parking lot, that gracious invitation changed the trajectory of our relationship. Uh, We could have easily become uh, fast enemies after that moment. Because in the South, you don't talk trash about somebody's mama's cooking, right? You just don't do that. And so we never did really settle the argument over whose mom cooked better. It's mine. (laughs) 
But we became friends. We decided that some things are more important than whose mom cooked better, such as playing Nintendo. And so we formed this friendship. And, and I kind of want to pick up uh, this week talking about generosity. And I want to talk about what does generosity look like in the context of relationships. Uh, Jay made a gracious offer, a generous invitation to come to his house and to play Nintendo. And that expression of grace change the trajectory of our relationship. So I start today where Eric left off last week with the intent of grace. Because what happens is anytime you extend generosity, it is by its very nature an act of grace. And we know that grace is the force that brings transformation in people's hearts and lives. And so anytime we give something out, we give something up. And so this offer of generosity changed our relationship. And today we're going to explore another relationship that was radically altered through the example of generosity in the life of the Apostle Paul. Uh, today for our text, we're going to be studying an entire book of the Bible. The book of Philemon. Don't worry, it's little. It's a one little page, uh, one little letter from Paul to this man Philemon. So if you want to turn there or pull it up on your, your device, uh, we'll read that together in a moment. And while you're getting there, I just want to kind of set this context. As, as we think about this wellspring, living from a place of God's generosity, it's easy, right, to get into the rut where we think about generosity solely in the terms of finance. We think that's what generosity is about. Uh, is it important to be generous financially? Absolutely. That is part of what it means to live a generous life. But that is only a small fraction. Uh, God calls us to be generous uh, with our whole lives. And we're going to explore through this letter what that might look like. Because the Apostle Paul does a great job uh, demonstrating generosity in his relationship with Philemon. So what happened was Paul wrote this letter during his first Roman imprisonment around 60 to 61 AD. Uh, it's widely known that Paul uh, led Philemon to the Lord. He was his spiritual father. Um, he was from Colossae. There's no evidence that Paul ever preached in Colossae, so most likely he came to faith. Uh, scholars would believe during uh, Paul's extended stay in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19. You can check that out. Uh, but Paul also encounters this young man named Onesimus, and, and we discover that Onesimus was one of Philemon's slaves, and he had run away. Now, slavery in the New Testament certainly had some differences to what we picture here with an American mindset, but Philemon did have slaves. Onesimus was one of those, and Onesimus, uh, it seems, uh, robbed Philemon and then escaped from Colossae to Rome in hiding. And while uh, Onesimus was in Rome, he encountered this man named Paul. And to encounter Paul was to encounter the gospel, right? Because he was this evangelistic madman. And, and we see that Paul led Onesimus to the Lord in Rome. And probably at some point discovers where he had come from. And so Paul, recognizing that Onesimus had done wrong by robbing Philemon and by running away, Paul is now going to send Onesimus back to Philemon to face the music. But he doesn't send him alone. He writes this epistle. He writes this letter. In this letter, he is appealing for Philemon to extend mercy, grace, and generosity towards Onesimus and to forgive him. And so we're going to look at that together. You guys ready? I don't believe you, so here's what we're going to do. I'm going to have you stand, if you would, if you're able, for the reading of God's word. And we're just going to look at this whole book together. All right? Now are you ready? 
Okay, now I believe you. All right, verse 1. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, also to Ophia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home, grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 4. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers because I hear about your love for all his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. And I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. It is none other than Paul, an old man and also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, that I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who has become my son while I was in chains. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. I am sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I am in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent, so that any favor you do would not seem forced, but would be voluntary. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was so you might have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. So, if you consider me a partner... Welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back. Not to mention that you owe me your very self. <laughs> Don't you love when someone says not to mention, but then they mention it anyways? I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord, verse 20. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I ask. Guys, pay attention. This verse, this next verse will help you. And one more thing. Prepare a guest room for me because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. There have been times that I have texted that verse to people that I plan to stay at their house. Just that scripture. And they can't really say no, it's biblical. And then I show up at their house. I've done that more than once. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with your spirit. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word, and Lord, we pray that your word would come alive in our hearts today. Lord, may it shape us, may it instruct us, may it guide us on our path of living a more generous life in all of our relationships. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys can grab a seat. All right, so just a little passage of scripture there. I want to just kind of highlight, if you'll allow me, uh, four things that I observe in this passage um, regarding what it looks like to be generous in our relationships. I think Paul does an incredible job of modeling what generosity in the midst of authentic relationship looks like. What does it mean to live from that wellspring of God's generosity? Paul shows us uh, several things in this text. And so the first thing I want to draw your attention to uh, is found in verses 4, 5, 6, and 7, and that is Paul is very generous with his words. 
And that's one way that we can be more generous in our relationship, is to be liberal in our praise, but conservative in our criticism. Paul just lavished uh, encouragement on Philemon in these first few verses. He commends him for his love. He encourages him because of his faith. He, he thanks him for his partnership. He is just encouraging, encouraging, encouraging. And you can almost sense that those words of encouragement are breathing life into the soul of Philemon because the words have power, right? We know this. We're aware of this. Our words, probably all of us, have experienced a painful word spoken from someone that stays with us for a long time, a word that deeply wounds us, a word that we have a difficult time getting past. Uh, many of us have had that kind of experience with negative words. But my prayer is that you've also had the experience of someone speaking a word of life, of someone being liberal with their praise, of someone encouraging you and calling out what they see in you. It's a powerful, powerful thing. In fact, Proverbs 18.21 tells us that the tongue uh, has the power of life and death in it. With our tongue, we can breathe life. With our tongue, we can bring death. We need to be careful with our words. Our words have great power. Uh, and I love that Paul said this. It's also in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29. He said, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it might benefit those who listen. Can you imagine for a moment how your life would be different, how your relationships would be different if you just applied this one thing? Right? If you only determined, I'm only going to let helpful things come out of my mouth, how would it transform your relationships? Yours may be okay. Mine need a little work. Okay, I need to apply this to my life and recognize that words have power. One of my earliest mentors, his name was Rob, invited me when I was a, a young man and youth with a mission uh, to teach for a couple days on a discipleship training school. I had preached sermons before. I had never taught for five hours, and I was terrified. Uh, but I did it scared, right? Sometimes that's what you have to do in life. It's just, you know, some of you, this is all you need this morning. Whatever you're thinking about, whatever God's prompting you to do, just do it scared, right? Don't hold back. Just step out and go for it. And I stepped out, and I taught. I left it all on the field, so to speak. I preached my guts out. I taught God's Word for five hours. Afterwards, I was drained. I was exhausted. And I'll be honest with you, I did terrible. It was not good. But Rob pulled me aside and just began to be lavish with his praise. He said, man, you did so good. I love how you tied this together. He just started encouraging me, and, and I felt like that deflated feeling I initially felt began to leave as, as he just began to encourage me. And he called out a gift that he saw in me. He said, Daniel, I think God's given you a gift to teach God's word. And I just thought this dude was completely delusional. Right? There's no way this is a, if this is a gift, it's not a good one. Right? But he just saw something, and he spoke words of life, and that encouragement flooded my soul. It was like oxygen to my heart, and he called out something that was in me and made me believe in myself, uh, or made me believe, uh, he believed in me more than I believed in myself, and it was powerful. Those words have power, and I think we see the same thing with Paul. He is being very lavish in his praise of Philemon, and, and that encouragement, I believe, strengthens Philemon to make the decision that he's going to need to make. Okay, the second thing we see, not only is he generous with his words, he's also generous with his time. This is a big one. In verse 10, we see Paul says, I now appeal to you for my son Onesimus. And he, he took the time to write this letter. Uh, that's kind of where I'm drawing from with this one. Uh, Paul had no need to get involved in this highly messy situation, right? Uh, Philemon was in a pickle, 
Uh, Onesimus was a runaway slave, and the penalty for runaway slaves was death. Could be death. But Paul is asking Philemon not to uh, exercise the full extent of the law that's perfectly, perfectly within his legal rights, but he's asking him to forgive him. But the problem is Philemon almost certainly has other slaves. And so if he forgives Onesimus and, and, and just releases him from the wrong that he did, it could set off a revolt amongst the others. And so there's this tense situation when Paul willingly gets involved, partly because he's Philemon's spiritual father, he's now Onesimus's spiritual father, and he's willing to get involved. And, and for me, I see as I read this text that that's one of the marks of a truly generous life. A generous person is willing to get involved in relationships, even when it's more convenient to neglect them. It would have been way more convenient, you see, for Paul to neglect this issue, to not personally get involved, but he was willing to step in and invest his time to try to see reconciliation between these two brothers. And what a powerful, powerful thing he did. Uh, he was willing to use that time, and that can be a difficult thing for us in Western culture. Uh, too often, our lives are ran by the clock. And I first encountered a totally different way of living uh, in 2001 on a mission trip to India. I went with a pastor uh, to visit uh, this, this church member's home, and, and as I went with him, this church member was leaving his house. He was locking the door and heading out, and as he saw us coming, he got his keys out, and he opened the door back up, threw his door open, invited us in, and he made his tea, and we sat and we talked for hours. And I thought, this dude's going to get fired, right? I mean, he's like at least two hours late for work, you know, in my Western mindset. But there, they have a, a whole different way of operating. Uh, this person was so generous with their time. They saw us coming, and they, they wanted to just invest in the relationship. And he went to work when we were done, but he first stopped and spent the time. And I remember being so convicted of how often I rush past relationship uh, for the sake of completing my to-do list, for finishing my task. And, and God was beginning to speak to me to slow down and be generous with my time in order to build healthy relationships. I think that's something Paul models for us in this text. All right, so number one, be generous with your words. Number two, be generous with your time. And number three, Paul models being generous with your resources. See, in verse 18 and 19, uh, Paul recognizes that there is a debt. Phi, uh, Onesimus uh, probably robbed Paul, and not only did he take whatever, or sorry, robbed Philemon, and not only did he take whatever it was he stole from him, but, but there were lost wages for every day that Onesimus wasn't serving Philemon. And so there was definitely a debt that was very real between Philemon and Onesimus. But Paul says, listen, if he owes you anything, charge that to my account. Put that on my tab. Charge me, I will repay it. And I love what Paul is doing here because I believe that Paul recognized that there was a debt that would create an obstacle for forgiveness. Paul maybe understood that Philemon potentially would have a hard time extending forgiveness in the face of this debt that he was owed. So Paul said, hey, if this is an issue, put it on my tab. I'm not going to mention you owe me your life, but go ahead, charge me for it. Right? He was willing to put his money so to speak, where his mouth was. He was willing to invest his resources to see racial recon or not racial uh, reconciliation happen between these guys who were estranged. And I think that's a great example for us, that we are called to be generous with our resources. And I love that Paul, what he was doing in making this generous offer is he was refusing to allow the situation to mean more than the relationship. There was definitely a situation. There was a problem. But Paul said, no, 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 no. This will not mean more than the relationship. I'm going to remove every obstacle 
so that reconciliation can take place, even if it means spending my money. And we can probably assume, quite safely, that Philemon was probably wealthier than Paul. Paul is an apostle. Philemon is a person who owned slaves, was probably quite a wealthy individual. But that doesn't stop Paul from saying, no, I will give whatever is necessary to see this relationship fixed. I'm willing to invest. Jesus said it this way in, in Luke chapter 6, verse 38. He said, give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down and shaken together, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. I've learned over the years of following Jesus that it is impossible to outgive God. Anybody with me? Anybody had that experience? I remember once again as a, as a young guy in, in Youth with a Mission, YWAM stands also for Youth Without Any Money. And so that was me. And uh, we needed $1,200 to go on a mission trip to Thailand. And we were leaving in three weeks, $1,200 short, which for a young YWAMer, that might as well have been a million dollars. There's no difference. It's just an unobtainable amount of finance that we didn't have. And one of our teachers was, was in town three weeks before this trip. <clears throat> and um, after she finished teaching, she said that she felt like God prompted her to give her honorarium, her, her money that she was going to make that week for teaching on our school, to me. And I had the opportunity to exercise one of my spiritual gifts, the gift of receiving. I said, thank you. Thank you very much. I received that. And I was just doing the math in my head. And, uh, you know, $1,200 minus $500, I only need $700 more. This is great. And as she slid the check that she signed over across the table to me, I felt like the Lord just kind of spoke to my heart and said, that money's not for you. And I felt like the Lord put it on my heart to send that check to my brother. And I had what we call an argument with God. Anyone ever had one of those? You know, I was like, my brother doesn't need money. He's got a full-time job. He's not a missionary. It's not holy to give him money, right? <laughs> Whatever the case was, I was just like, that, that doesn't make any sense. Why would I do this? And I had this argument with God, but it was so strong, I felt like I had to do it. And so I, I wrote a check to my brother and put it in the mail. I found out uh, the next week when he received that check that him and his, his wife had come in on some uh, financial hard times, and, and they didn't have money to provide Christmas for their kids. And this was right at Christmas time. They said, that check is going to totally enable me to bless my kids and give them Christmas. That so warmed my heart. That's awesome. It just felt so good to be obedient and see that there was a need that God used me unexpectedly to meet. Uh, and then about four days later, uh, a check came in the mail for $1,200, the exact amount we owed. And that's just one of many stories where I've seen where when you give generously from your own resources, God will always provide for you what you need. It's who he is. It's, it's what he does. And Paul models this in his relationship with Philemon by saying, if Onesimus owes you anything, put that on my account. I will repay you. And then finally, the last point I want to draw your attention to, uh, one of my favorites actually, uh, is this whole idea of not only being generous with your words, but being generous with your time, being generous with your resources. There's another level of generosity uh, that could radically change your relationship. And that's be generous with your assumptions. This is something that I hadn't thought a whole lot about until I was reading this book by an author named Marcus Buckingham. It's called The One Thing You Need to Know. Spoiler alert, there's more than one thing you need to know. But the book was great. It's a book on management and, and leadership. Uh, but before he gets into the specifics of being an effective manager, he, he talks about the one thing you need to know to have a healthy, happy marriage. And that got my attention because I thought, I'd like to have one of those. That sounds good. And so I began to read, and he talked about this study that was done by Dr. Uh, Sandra Murray um, from uh, State University in New York, which is in Buffalo, where she researched 105 couples uh, and had them fill out this little questionnaire. 
And these weren't couples that were blinded by love. They weren't in their honeymoon phase still. Uh, they had been married for an average, at the time of the survey, of 10.9 years. Okay, so they'd been married for a while. Uh, they had been together long enough to get on each other's nerves. Don't say amen too loud. She's sitting next to you. All right? And, and so they, uh, in, this, in this little survey, here's what they asked them to do. There was a whole list of, of positive character traits, like loving, uh, warm, accepting, uh, open, you know, all these, oh, just warm, yes, Lord? Okay, we're good. All these, all these kind of generous, uh, or all these positive character traits, and they had to assess their spouse. And after they assessed their spouse on, on those character traits, they had to assess themselves. And then at the very end, they had to rank uh, or assess how happy they were in their marriage, from extremely dissatisfied to very happily married on the other end of the spectrum. And, and what was fascinating through this study uh, was that in every single case where they ranked that they were uh, very happily married, here's what happened. The husband ranked his wife more positively on every single character trait than she ranked herself, and vice versa. The wife ranked their husbands the same. And what um, the, the person who conducted the study drew from that is that, that those who have the happiest marriages write a very generous narrative about their spouse and their mind. They perceive their spouse differently than the spouse perceives themselves. They are more generous in their assumptions about how their spouse is wired than the spouse is. And I love Marcus Buckingham ties that into a bunch of other studies, and he made this simple point. He said, if you want to have a happy, healthy marriage, and I think this applies to all of our relationships, not just marriage, he said, this is what you need to do, according to the study according to these research uh, experiments we've run. He said this. He said, find the most generous explanation for the other person's behavior and believe it. Find the most generous explanation and choose to believe that that's true. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes I find it easier to have negative assumptions than generous assumptions. Right? Something happens, like let's say that I pass you in the hall this morning and you kind of give me a cold shoulder, you don't speak to me. And I say, well, What's his problem? Oh, he might not like me because I'm the new guy. Or maybe he doesn't like that I think I'm funny, but I'm really not that funny. And so he's like, eh, I don't like this guy. And then all of a sudden, I feel like he doesn't like me. So then I start not to like him, right? And then I start to withdraw a little bit. I'm, well, I'll give you a cold shoulder, right? And not me, of course, I'm a, I'm a church worker. We don't do that. Right? But what happens is, is, is these relationships start to get separated because someone makes a negative assumption, and that perception colors their interaction with that person, which then causes them to withdraw, which then causes them to notice, and then they withdraw. You guys, you know what I'm saying? And then you get this chasm. But on the other hand, if you make a generous explanation, if you say, what's the most possible uh, generous explanation for why this person didn't speak to me? Well, maybe something's going on in their life. Maybe they're really struggling with something. So now the next time I see this person, instead of withdrawing from them because I think they're mad at me, I come to them and say, hey, you seem like you had something on your mind this morning. Is everything okay? And even if they were mad at me, the fact that I move towards them with a generous assumption begins to alter the dynamic of our relationship because of the care and compassion that my perception causes me to extend in that moment, right? Your perceptions are powerful. I'm going to be honest with you guys. When I, when I first came across this study in, in 2007, it changed my life. And I started practicing this all the time, just giving generous assumptions. And I'm kind of positively wired. I'm naturally optimistic. How many of you are with me? How many of you think that the person next to you raised their hand needs to put their hand down? Right. 
my wife would define herself as more of a realist, all right? And so she hated this idea. She goes, no, no, you're just being delusional. You're just, you're just deceiving yourself. They really were being a jerk to you. Stop making excuses for them, right? It was that kind of, was that kind of thing, uh, and she would happily tell you that. Um, but we began to see this, this change, and, and what we realized, and what Marcus Buckingham states in his study is, is when you choose to extend generous assumptions to someone, you are not only, um, you're not denying reality. What you're doing is you're creating your future reality with that person. Because your perception of them, based on your assumption about them, will filter the way that you treat them. And so when you make a generous assumption, you will move towards that person in in an attitude of love, right? And that alters the relationship. When you make a negative assumption, you withdraw. When you withdraw, you create this downward spiral of cynicism instead of a generous assumption making an upward spiral of love. You see the difference? Like this will change. And Paul uh, models this to Philemon in verse 21. He says, I'm confident of your obedience that you're going to do so much more than what I ask. You see, Paul didn't assume Philemon was going to do the worst or even do what he was within his legal rights. He assumed that he would do the best. He made a generous assumption and he communicated that assumption. And I believe that that generous assumption helped to alter the future relationship between Philemon and Onesimus. So in this text, we see these four areas where God invites us to be more generous in our relationship, to be more generous with our words, to be more generous with our time, to be more generous with our resources, and finally, to be more generous in our assumptions. But here's the good news, if that sounds a little bit overwhelming, is you don't have to do that alone. In fact, I would argue you probably can't. Only the experience of receiving the extravagant generosity of our God will enable us and empower us through his spirit to uh, give that generosity out to others. It's only by receiving his generosity, living in the wellspring of God's generosity, that we're able to extend such generosity to others. And so my prayer for us is simple this morning, is that we will begin to live from the wellspring of God's generosity, that we would begin to live deeply from that place, and that we would find the strength uh, from him and through him to extend generosity in all of our relationships. Maybe this morning you're here and someone comes to mind. Maybe you have a relationship that's currently strained. Maybe there's a relationship where you haven't been very generous. And maybe this morning God would invite you to begin to extend generosity to that person, whether it's through your words, your time, your resources, your assumptions, or something else. But God invites you into that place And I want to challenge you to begin living more generously in your relationships and see how that will alter and change the trajectory of those relationships. You might go from laying bloodied on the church parking lot to playing Nintendo in his house that afternoon. You never know what a generous invitation might do. So, Father, we thank you this morning for your word. God, we thank you, Lord, that your word is life and that in this, Lord, that you are calling us to a higher place to reflect your generosity to the world around us. Lord, we want to be a people that are generous in our relationships. Lord, we don't want to be greedy. We don't want to just give people what they deserve. We want to extend extravagant generosity, just as you have done for us. May you empower us to do for others. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you guys join me in a final song?